Um, we are now in First Thessalonians 2. What an, what an incredible thing with the Word of God that I could be reading this passage a couple of weeks ago and think to myself, I wonder what God's going to say through that. I'm, I'm not really, it's not really jiving with me too much. I'm not really having much um, information. But then to have God illuminate it and bring out uh, the text and what it means and what he's saying to us, it's such an exciting process every week. And this week, you know, I, I was so pleased with what God pulled out of this text. I think it's going to be great. We're going to be in First Thessalonians 2, verses 1 through 12. As I said when we started this series, Thessalonians is, is a great measuring stick for us. It's a great standard for us to, to look at ourselves and compare ourselves to this church, because this is a church that was, by all accounts, doing quite well, even in the midst of severe suffering, uh, much more than, than sheltering in place and having some inconveniences. These people were being oppressed for their faith as rather young Christians, but they were doing very well in the midst of it. And we see how these people in Paul's days, in Paul's ways, were following Jesus. And, Paul, and we can call from this uh, things that we can apply with wisdom to our lives in our days, in our ways, uh, for the times that we live in. So it's exciting to see this as a measuring stick, and that's how we're kind of reading it today. In fact, Paul even explicitly says, in this, this is a passage where Paul talks about himself and his ministry practices and how his ministry team functioned and when they came to Thessalonica. And Paul explicitly says in several different places, in First uh, Thessalonians 1, 6, he says, You became imitators of us and of the Lord. For you welcome the message in the midst of severe suffering with the joy given by the Holy Spirit. He's saying this is a good thing. He's saying it's a good thing that you imitated us, our way of life. In 2 Thessalonians 3, 9, Paul says, We did this not because we do not have the right to such help. He's talking about uh, working for money instead of being paid for the ministry. He says we, we, we decided to work for our money, um, not in the ministry, not because we don't have a right to be paid for the ministry, but in order to offer ourselves as a model for you to imitate. So in several different places, just in Thessalonians, Paul is saying, we are a model for you to imitate. Us as people, we're a model. And in, in uh, many other places in the New Testament, Paul says things like, follow me as I follow Christ. Be an imitator of me as I imitate Christ. So as Paul is talking about himself and how they conducted himself, we can see that he is encouraging you know, implicit to the text, the people to, to copy his way of life, which was actually an extension of the Christ life, the spirit of Christ working powerfully in Paul the Apostle. He's saying, imitate me, imitate Christ. This is a good thing. So um, the attitudes, the practices, he wants them to copy. There's absolutely no reason to suppose that uh, this does not apply to us. This is very much relevant material for us. So as we read about Paul and his ways, how they follow Jesus, I'm, I'm praying for a spirit of wisdom to understand how to apply um, these things to our day and our time and to be the church that makes God's heart rejoice, right? I love this quote about Thessalonians. It says, Paul does not praise the Thessalonians for wearing what Jesus wore or eating what Paul ate. He praises them for embodying in their own setting, a response to the gospel that is consistent with Jesus' own faithfulness and with the faith of their teachers. I love that. He's not saying, I'm glad that you're a carbon copy of Jesus and a carbon copy of me in, in trivial things. But he is, he is pleased at their wise consistency with the way of Jesus 
and their faithfulness to follow the way of their teachers in their context. So that's a really cool thing. Paul wants the Thessalonians to respond to God and to other people the way that Jesus did. As we said in Philippians 2, it says, if you have, if you have any encouragement from being in Christ Jesus, any love from the Spirit, if you have any benefit from being connected to Jesus, do me a favor. Take on the same mind as Jesus, the same general way of doing things. In humility, like Jesus, consider others better than yourselves. Each of you should look not only to your own interests, but to the interests of others. You know, Jesus did not die on the cross for himself. He died on the cross for us. He saw our need for a savior and for justice in this world. He died to meet that need. And he says, take on that same mindset. Imitate Christ's mindset in your family, with your kids, with your spouse, with your friends, in your church community, in your job. Don't think about only what your interests are. Think about the interests of the people around you and serve in the way of Christ, in your day, in your way. So this is, this is what Paul wants the Thessalonians to do. The first thing I see, see Paul saying is he wants the Thessalonians to imitate his priorities. And we're just going to go ahead and, and read this passage and, and, and in its entirety, then we'll kind of pick it apart. So here's Paul's ministry in Thessalonica, 1 Thessalonians 2, 1 to 12. You know, brothers and sisters, that our visit to you was not a failure. We had previously suffered and been insulted in Philippi, and you know, but with the help of our God, we dare to tell you his gospel in spite of strong opposition. For the appeal that we make does not spring from error or impure motives, nor are we trying to, f to trick you. On the contrary, we speak as men approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel. We are not trying to please men, but God, who tests our hearts. You know, we never used flattery, nor did we put on a mask to cover up greed. God is our witness. We were not looking for praise from men, not from you or from anyone else. As apostles of Christ, we could have been a burden to you, but we were gentle among you, like a mother caring for her little children. We loved you so much that we were delighted to share with you not only the gospel of God, but our lives as well. Because you had become so dear to us. Surely you remember, brothers and, brothers and sisters, our toil and hardship. We worked night and day in order not to be a burden to anyone while we preached the gospel of God to you. You are witnesses, and so is God, of how holy, righteous, and blameless we were among you who believed. For you know that we dealt with each, with each of you as a father deals with his own children, encouraging, comforting, and urging you to live lives worthy of God who calls you into his kingdom and glory. So what's the first thing that Paul wanted these people to, to imitate in their way of life? I believe the fundamental thing is his heart's um, biggest uh, commitment was the glory of God. He wanted these people to be imitators of him and the apostles in the way that they, um, they worried about what God thought, not about what other people thought. In 1 first, in first Thessalonians 2.4, it says, The appeal we make does not spring from error or impure motives, nor are we trying to, to trick you. On the contrary, we speak as men approved by God, to be entrusted with the gospel. We are not trying to please men, but God who tests our hearts. This is uh, Paul's priority. He says, it doesn't matter what it looks like our ministry is to other people. What matters is, is are we actually in our hearts trying to please God fundamentally underneath everything else? 
Let me tell you, if you're trying to please God underneath everything that you do, that's your motive, you're going to be in pretty good shape with your behaviors and different things. You know, we, work, we worry so much, and this is a, an age-old problem, we worry so much about how we appear to other people. We spend so much time manicuring and, and, um, and stabilizing our image. We, we, we put so much energy into looking good instead of the energy into actually being good, right? Put a lot of energy into how we look, how we appear to others. But Paul says, imitate me by trying to please God who tests our hearts. You know, it doesn't matter how many people that you please in your life, how many people you please in your family or your church or in society. The truth of who you are is who God knows you are. Now, people often say, be the person your dog thinks you are, right? Because your dog's with you all the time. Well, you know, the, the point is be, be a, a congruous person of integrity. Have the outside match the inside. Jesus criticized the Pharisees saying, you guys worry so much about ceremonial cleanliness with the, your, your religious dishes. Think about like an altar in a more traditional church and the, and the dishes and how clean they are. Jesus said, you worried so much about the cleanliness of the dishes. He goes, that's not what's important. What's important is what's inside the dishes. So Jesus says, as a metaphor, you know, cleanse what's inside of you and then everything will be clean. Worry about the inside. Worry about your heart. Are you living to please God? Or are you living to please people or to uphold an image of pleasing God? That's kind of fundamental to Paul. And he says very confidently in verse 4, we are not trying to please men and women, but God. And the reason is because God tests their hearts. There will be no one, um, there will be no humans who are evaluating your life, you know, after you die and you stand before God. It will it'll just be God. There's, there's no one qualified to do that, and no one knows you like God does. God knows the heart. He's not impressed by outward stuff. My wife bought a really cool calendar that we put in our house, and usually I don't like those Bible verse calendars and whatever. They're kind of like all the generic verses. This one had some really cool, interesting, like different verses. And the verse that, that really spoke to me was Psalm 9711. It says, Light shines on the righteous and joy on the upright in heart. That really spoke to me. Light shines on the righteous and joy on the upright in heart. Why is there so much light and joy in someone who's righteous and upright in their heart? Because they're free. They are, they're not living a double life. They are congruous with themselves. They're, they're happily living before God and before people um, in authenticity. God cares about the heart. Paul wants the people he's writing to to imitate his priorities. His priority was, we're not trying to please people here. We're trying to please God. And what a relief to just see the, the genuineness of Paul's and his, and his partners, um, his uh, ministry partners' um, authenticity in their call. It's something that we should want to imitate as well. Um, if you live to please God and you live as if God is the judge of your heart, you're going to live differently. You're going you're gonna to do well. Um, you're going to get through a lot. So Paul wanted the people to imitate his priority. We speak as approved by God, entrusted with the gospel. We're not trying to please people. We're trying to please God because he's the one that tests our hearts anyway. That's a good way to live. And by the way, I'm not here saying you should follow me because I do this perfectly. I, I've, I have a long way to go. I'll admit that. I'm, I'm not an apostle. Um, 
But that's not an excuse, you see. Um, I, th I think I have a, lo a long way to go before I can say this sentence, follow me as I follow Christ. That's a bold sentence. But I want to be a pastor and a friend and a family member and a brother and an uncle and a grandfather and a husband who can say confidently, follow me as I follow Christ. I want to be that person who's upright, righteous heart can, can be joyful and free because there's no deception in that heart. You know, we've all got a long way to go, but this is a good thing to push towards. Second thing that Paul models um, and, and teaches and wants his people to imitate is his clear, uh, his, his sense of concern for the purity and integrity of the gospel message. Paul is, as you can see in this passage, he is very concerned that people are going to not believe that his motives are pure. He's not worried about that because uh, he is, um, he's not worried about that because he's worried about what people think of him. He just got through saying he doesn't care what people think of him. He cares what God thinks about him. He's worried about people, his credibility, because he's worried about what that could do to the message he is sharing. In Paul's day, just as in our day, we are very cynical and suspicious people. And you know what? We, we, rightfully so. We have fallen prey in our day, just as, just as Paul did in his day, with people that are peddling things and trying to sell us something. And, and we are always looking for what is the catch? What is the catch? What's this person really up to? And I think it's just gotten worse and worse. But in Paul's day, traveling philosophers, traveling pastors, religious folks who had a following and all this, they, 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 were, they were hucksters. They were, they were tricksters. They were trying to get people to either fulfill an emotional need in them to be revered as a great teacher or to give them literally money to fund them. And, uh, and people could see through it and, and so and see that they were charlatans. And so Paul was very concerned. I don't want people to think those things about me because my message is so important. The gospel message is so important. So uh, Paul goes through great lengths to model, give an example of um, his concern for the integrity of the gospel. When I was listening to, I was listening to uh, the news this morning, and, and one of the callers talked to the host and said, you know, what would it take to, for people's uh, um, trust to be restored in in news, just from anywhere. And uh, the, the kind of conclusion from these two experts were, you know, that ship has kind of sailed. People are always going, to, there's a lack of trust, even in those places where we should be able to get true and good news. And Paul is saying, you know, this is tough in his time as well. First uh, Thessalonians 2, 3. For the appeal we make does not spring from error or impure motives. Okay, so he's saying, we want you to know that our motives are pure. We're not trying to trick you. On the contrary, we speak as men approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel. We're not trying to please men, but God who tests our hearts. You know, we never used flattery, nor did we put on a mask to cover up greed. God is our witness. We were not looking for praise from men, not for you or anyone else. So here, Paul is, Paul is saying, look, I know what you're thinking. I know what you're thinking. You're thinking of those that, that try to trick and try to for their own gain, either financially or in notoriety or in influence. Um, here's the things that you're looking for. You're looking for someone who's wearing a mask, but really underneath it, they're greedy. They're out for money. Um, you're looking for people who are, tr who are um, 
have impure motives and are working from a place of error, just trying to convince people of their, their philosophy, their, their religion, their way of life, we're not any of those things. In fact, Paul goes on to say, um, he and his companions decided not to take any kind of compensation for their ministry, even though they had a right to that compensation, because he was so concerned about um, how the gospel was being perceived by the people he was preaching to. And he felt at that time, he discerned that if people know that I'm drawing a salary or, or money from my ministry, that, that could take away from the integrity of the gospel in people's eyes. So he chose, Paul and his companions chose to be tent makers and, uh, while they were living among the Thessalonians. In other words, they set up shop and they had um, they were working nine to five for a very cheap labor, like a very, you know, um, not very lucrative job to make enough money to live, to, to pay rent, to pay for their food, take care of their own needs so that they could not be accused of doing something for, for just financial reasons. That's how far Paul took his concern about the integrity of the gospel. He put his money where his mouth was. A lot of what his discipleship that he was doing, this is a weird thought, it wasn't just him coming into town and preaching. He was actually working like a nine-to-five job, and he was like doing discipleship while he worked, probably working with leather with his people. So people from Thessalonica would come over to the shop, and they would be discipled while maybe even join in the work because Paul did not want it to appear he had impure motives. He went the extra mile to do this. And I think Paul wants us to have concern for the integrity of our gospel as well. He wants us to... In this world, he wants us to stand out from the very unreliable news sources that we have. He wants us to stand out from the, 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 the drivel of um, Facebook feeds and, uh, and, and Twitter and all this stuff. And he wants us to say things that are true because the gospel actually does have the power to change lives and bring about great uh, changes in our world. Many of the, the social justice initiatives of the last couple hundred years were, have been driven by Christians trying to follow in the way of Jesus. Okay? So this is a powerful message, not just individually, but societally. Paul is very concerned that it could lose its integrity, and so he did everything he could to, to make sure people knew, we're doing this because we love you. We're not sharing just our ministry with you. We're sharing our lives with you. Here we are. You're dear family to us. We, we're here among you. We're invested. We have the words of life. I think one of the problems with, um, you know, in, in the Christian community, I know, I know in the 1980s, you know, there were many notable Christian televangelist people who fell morally and caused a lot of damage in their wake, like, like a kamikaze, right? They're flying high in a fast plane. They crashed to earth, caused all this damage. There's been a lot of love hucksters and scammers and people in our own claiming to be followers of Jesus. And so we have a lot of cynical people around us that are, that are hardened to, you know, the, the money grabbing, the greed, the desire for influence that, that some people have had. We must be different because there is something real in the gospel. That's why we have to be so careful about the integrity of the gospel. Um, there's something real here. Um, but, you know, you know the story of, of uh, Moses and Pharaoh. Pharaoh um, Moses did a miracle. He, he threw his staff on the ground. It turned into a snake. He touched his staff to the, to the river. It turned to blood. And then Pharaoh's magicians duplicated Moses' tricks in a smaller way by their own magic arts. Today we're in danger with the gospel, the powerful gospel message, losing its power 
because everyone thinks that's all smoke and mirrors. The charlatans out there that have said that they are truth um, have muddied the water for everybody. And so we've, we've lost our expectation of the power of the gospel. The power, doesn't, the power of the gospel is not just in um, salvation, but it's also in healing. There is healing in the gospel. People can be physically healed uh, by Jesus. Uh, relationships can really be restored. There can be real forgiveness and reconciliation in Christ. Uh, there can be justice brought about through the gospel. All these wonderful things, real things, can happen through the gospel if we, if we um, let the water get muddied enough by not having a concern for the integrity of this message and its practice, um, we're going to have some problems. And there's, there's real life in the gospel. There's a real power in Jesus. It's not all magic tricks. There's real power in a relationship with God. Different things we can expect. We want people to know that. Paul, in 2 Corinthians 4.2, even when he talks about how, how he shares the gospel. You can hear his heart. He says, Rather, we have renounced secret and shameful ways. We do not use deception, nor do we distort the word of God. On the contrary, by setting forth the truth plainly, we commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. Paul made his resolution to just plainly lay out the gospel, not with embellishments, because he saw there was power in the message. Because the God behind it was powerful. I love Paul, the amazing preacher. He says, in 1 Corinthians 2, 45, my message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, with a demonstration of the Spirit's power, so that your faith might not rest on human wisdom, but on God's power. Now, Paul was an amazing orator, amazing teacher, organized philosopher, you know, top-notch intellectual of his day. He basically dumbed down the way he talked, you know, dumbed down, so that anyone could understand it, because he did not believe that the power lay, lay in his ability per, to persuade people. He believed that the power of the gospel lay in the actual power of God behind the message. So he made his, his job to just say it clearly, matter-of-factly, not try to convince people per se, uh, not in the ways of the world anyway, and then wait for the power of God to do life change in people's lives, to deliver people from demonic oppression, to heal people's diseases, to um, give, give sight to the blind, to set spiritual captives free, to um, reconcile human relationships. He just waited for God to move. And he, he was so concerned about the integrity of the gospel and not murking up the waters because he knew there was a real power behind it. We have to have the same kind of concern these days. So Paul wants, he wants us to imitate his number one priority, that um, it's God who tests the heart, so we are not trying to please people. We're trying to please God. That's number one. Number two, a concern for the gospel's integrity, that it wouldn't be lost, the power of the gospel wouldn't be lost in a cynical, faithless generation uh, by us muddying the waters further. Third thing that, that, you, that you see this passage dripping with is Paul provided an example of how to provide a clear sense of love and deep commitment with the people he ministered to. First uh, Thessalonians 2, 7-12 Listen to this. But we were gentle among you, like a mother caring for her little children. We loved you so much that we were delayed to share with you not only the gospel of God, but our lives as well, because you had become so dear to us. Surely you remember, brothers and sisters, our toil and hardship. We worked night and day in order not to be a burden to anyone while we preached the gospel of God to you. 
You are witnesses, and so is God, of how holy, righteous, and blameless we were among you who believed. For you know that we dealt with each of you as a father deals with his own children, encouraging, comforting, urging you to live lives worthy of God who calls you into his kingdom and glory. Notice Paul gives the full range of parental love. He says, you know, we loved you like a mother caring for her children. And the picture is of like a nursing mother taking care of the needs of, a, of an infant, something that only she can really do in that moment. And then um, like a father, and I guess you could say this of any parent, um, like a good father deals with his own children. We encourage you, comforted you, urge you to live lives worthy of God who calls you into his kingdom and glory. You know, some of you hear these words and these images and you're like, that's not the kind of father I had, <laughs> you know? He's like, you know, it takes as, as, a, as a, he takes it uh, for granted that you, you think of, when you think of father, you think of someone who encourages you, comforts you, and urges you to live a life worthy of God and others. And when you think of a mother, you think of someone who nurtures you, takes care of you, provides safety for you. He takes these things for granted. But let me tell you, most people in this world do not have a default of what he's talking about here. Most people have not experienced that kind of family, right? Paul was doing something. When people became Christians in Thessalonica because of the way that society was set up, it meant that they were on the outs many times with their, with their family of origin, their biological family, and their community. They were no longer participating in ancestor worship, for instance, which, which would have been very offensive to their families of origin. They were no longer um, doing the idol worship and things from the city. They were, they were going against the grain. And many of these people lost their mothers, lost their fathers, lost their brothers and sisters. Just like in some Amish communities today, they, they were shunned, right? All of a sudden, they're orphans. And Paul is saying, this is how we were among you. We were like a mother, like a father. In fact, we didn't just share ministry. We didn't just share a sermon with you. We, we shared our lives with you. You can rely on us to fill this, this need that you have for family. In our day, I don't think that that many people, right in our context, this is not true around the world or even in all of the United States, but in our context, I don't feel like the, the penalty for becoming a Christian is often as severe as it would have been in, in a place like Thessalonica. But... Our default in our day, the breakdown of, of families and stuff, we just, many people come, come to a church and they, they do not have an example of like a father that encouraged them, that um, comforted them, that, that you know, they, would someone say, my father comforted me, my father encouraged me, my father helped me to live out my calling. Or they might not have an experience of a mother who nurtured them and, and, and protected them in those, these kind of archetypal ways. Um, we need to be the family that people don't have. Maybe they never had. You know, our commitment to one another as a body needs to be as strong as a family bond. And we need to provide for our brothers and sisters in Christ in this body the love of a mother, the love of a father, the love of a brother, sister, uncle, grandfather, grandparents. We have these needs that we've, we were created to have filled, and many of us do not get those needs met. Many people don't get those needs met. The church needs to be a place where they're authentically met by people that, that mean to meet them. Not, a bunch of, not charlatans posturing and posing and pretending to be something that they're not or doing, doing it for the money, whatever that might mean, right? Um, we need people that are authentically love us and show the grace, the love, the nurture, the encouragement of Christ to us. We all need that. From me to the elders to every single person in this church. We're a family. When I got married, 
we chose to have our flower girl and ring bearer be children of members of our church because me and Jackie symbolically, in our, even in our marriage, we're saying, you know, this is family too. We love our families. They're wonderful. Um, we, are, we are very blessed to have the families that we have. Uh, but the church family is, um, is vital. And we, we believe that. You know, for, for me and for Jackie and for the elders and, the, and um, in this church and many others, I mean, we, when you come into the door here, you know, we look at you not as a face or as to be seen in the crowd or as a butt on a seat or as a coin in a offering tray. We see you as a family member who's come to serve Christ with us and come to be family with us. That's what we, we have to be. We have to expand our families to not just be us and self-centered and our family-centered, to be church-centered. Um, we are family in Christ. Hey, we might not all have great affinity together. Some of us don't get along with each other. That's fine. We have different personalities. But fundamentally, we're all family, and we're all connected, and we can all work, work this thing out to love one another. And it says, as Jay pointed out last week, the world will know we are Christians by the love we have for one another, which is a reflection of the love of Christ. Servanthood, self-giving love, sacrifice, looking out for other people's interests, people that are very different from us. I think if you find the person that's most different from you and figure out what their real interests are, what they need, and you try to meet those needs, you're, you're on your way to, to the love of Christ. Not loving people because they're like him, but because they're very different from him. And they need love. Everyone needs love, right? So that's great. Paul, Paul modeled this love and commitment of a, a mother, a father, brother, sister, uncle, grandpa, grandma. It was all there in Paul. And he, he, he let them know that's, that's the truth. The final thing I think um, Paul was, was giving an example of was letting people know the goals he was working towards. Um, that he was uh, not trying to please people trying to please God, not looking for praise from people, looking for commendation from God. Now, Paul's goal was not selfish. It was not to exercise his authority, to become rich, to become puffed up and self-important. Paul's goal was simply to know Christ and to make him known and to do the work, to do the work of a family member, of an evangelist, all just for God's glory. That was his goal. He wanted his people to, to share in that goal. His goal was an authentic work of Jesus Christ in the life of every person in that church, an authentic work. We see, we see that so clearly in just every part of this passage, that his goal was to be for this people um, a representation of the love of Christ, not for any other reason than because they're beloved of God, and his goal in all of that was just to please God. His mindset was to please God. So really that, that, that pulls everything together so well. In our passage today, you know, Paul wanted his people to imitate his priorities. He wanted them to have concern for the integrity of the gospel, that people would come to know the real message and that find real freedom. Um, he modeled a sense of love, community, and family, and commitment to the people that he ministered to. He didn't just cast the check and leave town. He cared about these people. And, um, and he, he wanted them to share with him in the goals that he had in his ministry, uh, not to please men, but to please God who looks at the heart. Um, these are things that we can take and run with in New Life Fellowship. Um, we can become people of integrity 
who the outside matches the inside. We can, we can begin to just confess to one another when, we don't, when, when things are not going well and just, just uh, give grace to one another. Just be truthful about where we're at instead of, I'm doing good. To say, you know what, um, I'm not there yet. And as, as I said to you as your pastor, you know, to say, follow me as I follow Christ every step of my life every week, I'm not comfortable with that yet. It's a challenge to me. It should be a challenge to all of us to get to that place where we can live in peace because we're following God with integrity. And then just the love and service found in Jesus, loving and serving one another, making this a real family, thinking about each other as brothers and sisters, children, mothers and fathers, grandparents, a safe place to be loved and encouraged and um, spurred on to live the life that God has called us to live and doing all of these things for the glory of God alone because it's him who looks at the heart. That's why in Matthew 6, Jesus when he's teaching on fasting, praying, giving, he obsessively is saying to people, don't do these things to be seen by other people or heard by other people. Do them in secret to God who sees what no one else sees. And then the God who sees what's done in secret will reward you because God, Jesus knew that if you do these things too publicly, the danger is that you will care more about how you appear to people than about your actual heart and lose touch with the God who made you. And that's the danger of anyone. I mean, it's the danger of me standing before you today. And um, I certainly am challenged by the Word of God, as are, I hope, all of you are as well. Um, I want you to know that uh, you are like a family to Jackie and I and the kids, and we are looking forward to seeing you again. The change, it's, it's hard. You know, it's very hard to transition from, you know, everyone's here at church in the beginning of March to now I'm here with the camera and hanging out with my brother, Rob, as we do this together. And then going back into um, meeting together and getting everything ready. It's a, lot of, it's a lot to think about, a lot to process, a lot to move in. But the whole reason that we're doing it is not for the sake of doing it. It's for the glory of God because we think it's better for us to be together and be, be together safely. And we think that we need to be together to love each other as a family and to see the authentic work of God happen among us as we follow Jesus. And what that looks like, we won't know. But, but it's a new season, a new time, a new better time for us to be alive, to be a part of the church to come together and see what God does among us and for our community. So.